And as you're being seated, you can turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 14. If you need a Bible, we have some on this table back here in the back. And if you do not have one, please allow that to be our gift to you today. Romans chapter 14, we are beginning in verse 13 of Romans 14. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The word of the Lord. All right, guys, as we get into today's text... There's one core principle that we have talked about continually over the last few weeks that I want to remind us of, and it is the biblical concept of agape love. As we've said over the last few weeks, the Greeks, and the New Testament was written in Greek, the Greeks had like six or seven different words for our one word love. And most of those six or seven words are not found in the New Testament. There are really only two that are found in the New Testament with any significance, and one dominates, and that is the word agape. Agape love is in contrast to philos, which is this other Greek word we see in the New Testament, and philos is sometimes translated as brotherly love, but it has more to do with like feeling and affection. And what we've said over the last few weeks is so often when we talk about love, we are talking about feeling and affection. We're talking about our emotional state towards another person or thing. Um, Yet with agape love, when we start breaking that down, the scriptures continually use that word to describe the love of Christ and the love of God for us. And so as we've said in the last few weeks, that that incredibly famous verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, the word there is agape, for God so agaped the world. And here's what that word means. It's not just feeling and emotion. It it means self-sacrifice. Like that is the defining characteristic of the love of God. It is self-sacrificial. And so we've hit on that several times over the last few weeks. And so in one extreme of agape, agape is a love that will like die for another person. Remember, one of the things we said was, it's not just about what you feel, it's about what you do. So God's love for us is seen not just in the fact that he has said things about us or that he has shown us some kind of affection or warmth, 
But God's love for us is seen in that he died for us while we were sinners. So on one extreme, like I said, agape could be dying for another person. But on another extreme, agape can relate to simply sacrificing one's preferences or conveniences or comfort for another When we look at the life of Christ, his sacrifice wasn't simply the cross. It wasn't just his death. His sacrifice began when he stepped out of heaven. And as the scriptures say, when he was made lower than the angels. That's when the sacrifice began. But it was a sacrifice that he willingly took on because of his great love for us. So as we think about loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and that who the, that's who the Apostle Paul is talking to here, when we start thinking about loving each other well, recognize, guys, that there is a call placed on us, on one end, to be willing to die for each other, to love each other so much that we would be willing to go to that extent. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus is going, this is like the pinnacle of love, this act of laying down your life for another person. Yet the reality for us right now in 2020 is that what's really being demanded of us at the present moment is not necessarily that we would like lay down our lives for each other. Thankfully, that's not what we're experiencing at the moment necessarily, but rather that we would lay down our preferences our desires, our wants, our wishes for the good of others. And this is especially true when you're a part of a group that's church planning, as we are. Like when you're a part of a group that's starting something from scratch, man, it is so challenging. And if there is not like this mutual desire to submit our preferences to each other, then it can become incredibly difficult. When you're starting a church, there are so many things you don't have that you want, but, but are just not realities at the present moment. But you're laying down like your desire for some of those things in the immediate because you're committed to the mission of Christ, the mission of the gospel, to take the gospel and to go and to proclaim it and to demonstrate it. And so hopefully, because you are doing that, there are future generations that will maybe get to experience the thing that you and your family are not currently experiencing. The realization for me is that while my kids may not get to be a part of the like bustling youth ministry that I was a part of with like 150 to 200 kids, you know, taking ski trips and beach trips and all that kind of stuff, while they might not get to experience that kind of thing, they are getting to experience something incredible that I never got to experience, which was being a part of a true family of faith, living on mission together. When I was a kid, I got to attend events, but I didn't get to be a part of a family in the way that my kids get to. So there are pros and cons, and there's a trade-off there. But laying down our preferences is far easier said than done. Like we can claim that that's what we're called to. We can affirm that that's what we're called to. It's far easier said than done, especially if you feel that the thing that you prefer is the right thing and that what other people prefer is the wrong thing. Does that make sense? So it's hard no matter what, laying down your preferences. But it's even harder when you go, I think I'm right here and I think everybody else is wrong. 
Let's look at our text today because Paul throws a pretty astounding idea to us. Verse 14. Paul says this in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Stop there for just a moment. He says, I'm persuaded that nothing is unclean in in and of itself. So that possibly just goes right over our heads, just kind of washes over us. But I want you to just stop for a moment and consider how like radical and unheard of something like that would have been for Jewish readers or Jewish hearers. And Paul was a Jew. But if you go back and read the Old Testament, if you read the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, where the law is handed down through Moses, what you will see is that everything is about this clean and unclean thing. Like everything is, is kind of viewed through that lens for Jewish people. Is it clean? Is it unclean? Should I do it? Should I eat it? Should I drink it? Has it been sacrificed to some other God? Like, so everything kind of goes through that paradigm for Jews. And even at the time in which Paul's writing, that's still very much the mindset. And so for Paul to say something like this would have been like audacious. It would have been shocking to Jewish hearers. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in and of itself. And yet what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about this new covenant in Christ. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the old law has now been fulfilled. And now there is this new covenant based on Jesus' blood. So he says, I'm persuaded that nothing in and of itself is unclean. But then he says this. He says, but it is unclean for anybody who thinks it's unclean. So what in the world? Like, so remember, our, our first core principle we talked about was agape love. A second core principle that we looked at last week was this principle of practicing non-judgment. Like rather than seeking to discern the purity or the authenticity of another person's faith, we recognize that everybody is in a different place developmentally when it comes to Christ. We're all like on a different point in the journey. Some of us are maybe farther down the road. Some of us may be way back at the very beginning. We're all in different places. To use Paul's language, he said some people are weak and some people are strong. Or we could say some people are immature in the faith. Some people are more mature in the faith. And yet, Paul began this paragraph by posing this challenge to his readers. He said, you need to decide now to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. You need to decide now that I'm never going to intentionally do anything that could impede the spiritual growth, the faith development, the maturity of a brother or sister in Christ. You need to decide that now. You need to make that a priority as you live out this faith in your day-to-day life in the body of Christ. You need to recognize that because this is a family, there is like this symbiosis going on here. There is this sense in which the way that I interact with you has an effect on your spiritual growth and faith. I mean, how many people do you guys know who have been hurt in the church, in relationship with other Christian people, and their response has been to walk away from the faith or to walk away from the church altogether? Or to go, I'm just going to do this Jesus stuff on my own. 
So the way that we interact with each other, the way that we talk to each other, has an effect on our spiritual growth and development. So Paul says, listen, we have to figure this out now. We have to resolve in our hearts now that we're never going to do anything intentionally to like impede the development or the maturing of another person. And it seems to me as if Paul is certainly like addressing everybody here, but perhaps he's looking most intently at those who should be mature, like those who should be strong or those who would claim to be strong or more mature in the faith. Martin Luther famously summed up this situation for us. I think I've got it up here on the screen. Martin Luther said, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. And while that may sound like doublespeak, it actually aligns perfectly with the teaching of the New Testament. For example, consider these verses. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is a recurring pattern that we see in the teaching of the New Testament, that you have been saved from something for something. And, and in particular, you have been saved from something for somebody or somebody's, a people. Like you have not been saved from sin and death and hell just for yourself. You've actually been saved from those things for the good of other people. So you've experienced this freedom, but this isn't just an opportunity for you to do whatever you want to do. No, no, no. You've, been, uh, you've experienced this freedom so that you can serve other people. Look at this next passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So again, you have been freed so that you might be a servant. Notice the like paradox of that. You have been freed so that you might be a servant. And then finally, here's an extended passage where Paul tries to kind of explain himself. This is in 1 Corinthians. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So even just right there, Paul's saying, Listen, I am intentionally not only not trying to be an impediment or a hindrance to anybody else. But I'm actually trying to make myself an advocate or an accelerant for other people so that they might progress more quickly towards the way of Jesus. To the Jews, I've become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I have become as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So Paul says, man, I am like bending over backwards to serve everybody that I come into contact with. So what do the scriptures mean when they talk about freedom? What do the scriptures mean when they talk about freedom? I think sometimes we hear the word freedom and we immediately think of this uh, American uh, libertarian type version of freedom. But the foundational notion of freedom in the scriptures is freedom from sin and death. 
Like that is what Jesus has like freed us from. Christ has come and through his death and resurrection, he has loosed the bonds of sin on our lives so that we might for the first time in our lives be free not to sin. So the biblical idea is that you have been in bondage. You might not realize it. You might go, man, I'm, I'm a nice person or I'm a moral person, but yet at your core, you have been in bondage to sin. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has done something that you did not have the power to do on your own. He has freed you from that if you have followed him in faith. So for the first time in your life, you are free not to sin. But also in the context of Romans, it also relates to this freedom from the Old Testament Mosaic law, and in particular, freedom from all of the dietary restrictions associated with the Mosaic law. So you see him talk about food over and over again. Why is he talking about food? We've mentioned this in weeks past, but this was an ongoing tension in the early church because you had Jews and you had non-Jews. You had Jews who wanted to hold to the ancient Jewish dietary restrictions. You had non-Jews who didn't get that, didn't want anything to do with it, didn't want to try to follow it. And Paul comes along saying, listen, we've all been freed from these things. Like we don't, none of us have to adhere to this anymore. And you don't have to start adhering to this in order to be a Christian, in order to follow Christ. So, so like, let's just, let's be past it and let's move on. And yet there were many who were not. But so perhaps there's an overarching principle in all of this. And, and I would say it's this, your freedom in Christ also provides you with an opportunity to be free from self-focus. It is a freedom to be humble. It's a freedom to be let go of old priorities so that your focus might become loving others well. Again, freedom and servanthood seem to go hand in hand here in the scriptures. So our freedom is a freedom from self-focus so that we can become others-focused. Look at verse 15. Paul says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, not, not just if he disagrees, but if he's grieved by it, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So you read that right. We do, in fact, need to care deeply about how our actions might affect or be perceived by others in our faith family. If you've bought into the modern notion that the secret to happiness is not caring about what other people think, then you have bought into a notion that really says that extreme self-focus is the key to happiness. Let me say that again. If you have bought into the modern notion that the secret to happiness is in not caring about what other people think, then you have bought into a notion that really says that extreme self-focus is the key to happiness. And guys, this is anti-gospel thinking. This is anti-servanthood type thinking, anti-humility of Christ type thinking. And let me point out that there is a big difference between people-pleasing and people-serving 
People-pleasing is rooted in a place of self-focus that craves the approval of others and is willing to alter behavior or beliefs in order to receive that approval. So if you are a people-pleaser, it's really all about your neediness, not other people's neediness. And it's reactive. People pleasers are the kind of people that are sometimes described as chameleons. You, you walk into a room and you're taking your cues on how to be and how to interact, how to appear, how to talk by the way that other people respond to you and what you think other people want from you. And it's because you deeply crave and, and desire their affirmation. Who do I need to be for you so that you will accept me and affirm me? That's people-pleasing. People-serving, on the other hand, is all about the other person and their neediness. What is it that they need and how can I serve them? It is a place of proaction rather than reaction, and it asks the question, who do I need to be for you so that you might grow in Christ? This is what Paul was just talking about in 1 Corinthians. I became a Jew to Jews. I became a Gentile to Gentiles. To the weak, I became weak. To those inside the law, I became inside the law, outside the law, outside the law. Paul says, I've become all things to all people. And we hear that and go, that sounds terrible, but grasp what he's saying. He's saying, I'm looking at each person and I'm going, man, what do they need? How might I serve them so that they can get this gospel that I'm talking about and see this gospel that I'm talking about and from their place of immaturity start to take steps forward toward maturity? Who do I need to be for you so that you might grow? And humility, guys, is in sacrificing your desires and your preferences so as to serve another person. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So that's our goal, peace, right? He says the kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking. It's about things like righteousness and peace. So what do we need to pursue with each other to pursue righteousness and peace with each other? And this is where it gets really challenging for us. Paul says this, if your brother sees what you do as being sinful, if you persist in it, Knowing that it offends your brother, it becomes sin to you, even if what you're doing is not sinful. Does that make anybody else's brain explode? Right? Paul says, okay, you're doing something that is not sinful, but your brother views it as being sinful. And if you persist in it, knowing that your brother sees it as sinful, it becomes sin to you, even if it's not sin. Even if what you're doing is not wrong. I grew up in a town that was like completely dry in terms of alcohol. Right? He mentions alcohol here in this text. Did you notice that? Grew up in a town that was completely dry. There were no liquor stores. You could not have a glass of wine at a restaurant. You couldn't buy beer at the gas station. My family largely did not drink all that much. Um, And going to church as a kid, I learned that drinking alcohol was a sin. As a a teenager, our church would constantly put on these like evangelism dramas. And inevitably, in every single one of them, there would be a group of teenagers in the drama who would drink and drive and die and go to hell. That's what I grew up watching. But then I started reading the Bible for myself. 
I learned that the Bible doesn't say that drinking is a sin. Quite to the contrary, the Bible often says that wine is an example of God's blessing and his goodness. Jesus, in fact, did not drink Welch's grape juice at the Last Supper. What the Bible paints as sin is drunkenness. And this is true of pretty much any good thing in our lives. If we take it to the extreme, whether it's alcohol or it's food or it's sex or anything, if we take it to the extreme, it becomes sin. If we overuse or overconsume what the Lord has given us or use it for the flesh, as we were talking about earlier, then it can become sin very easily. So I learned this, and I learned that also this was not something new that had come with Jesus. This was not like some new freedom that had arrived when Jesus died and was resurrected. This was something that the people of God had always been free to do. And so I didn't head off to college and become like a lush. In fact, I didn't even really drink much until it was legal for me to do so. But I did, I think, take on like a self-righteousness that made me feel better than everyone else or smarter than everyone else as it related to this issue. And I thought it would probably be best for me to intentionally drink in front of people who I knew did not approve so as to prove to them it was actually okay. Has anybody else ever taken that tack before, like with a parent or a loved one who maybe they don't approve of something in your life and it just makes you all the more want to do it in front of them, either to just kind of get their goat or in the hopes that maybe they'll kind of go, you know what, maybe I think this is okay after all. So several years later, um, I developed a close friend, a friendship with somebody who, whose life had been ruled by alcohol for years and years. And it was really, I mean, he had a crazy story. It was really only through the grace of God that he was, one, still alive, that his marriage was still intact, and that he still had a relationship with his kids. Because, I mean, he had just been off the rails for a number of years. And you know what? As I got to know him and love him, never once did I think... I need to prove to this guy that drinking is okay. Never once did I think, I need to be sure to drink in front of him so that he gets the message that, that this, is, this is something that the Lord has given us as a blessing. No, quite to the contrary. I thought, man, I need to be really cautious around this person because I know this is something he struggles greatly with. And I did that because I loved him. I have family members who have said to me before, I can't, I can't believe you're a pastor and you would have a glass of wine. And, and my tendency is to want to go, well, let me tell you why you're wrong and I'm right. But the reality is, is I have family members who have been touched by the abuse of alcoholism and the trauma of alcoholism. And the question is not, how can I be right? Or how can I prove my point to them? The question is, man, how can I serve them? And I haven't always gotten that. Like that has, That's something that has come for me, I think, as I've matured in Christ, to come to care more about their needs than I care about my own desire to be right. To use this analogy with Paul's point, drinking alcohol may not be inherently wrong. However, if you know that others see it as wrong and you intentionally do it in front of them anyway, then Paul says you have sinned. 
And you've done the opposite of love. And the sin is not drinking. The sin is pride. The sin is a lack of humility. It's showing through your actions that you care more about being right than you care about the other person and their walk with the Lord. So guys, the call this morning is a call to sacrifice your need to be right. Your need to do what you want. Your need to get what you want. It's agape. So that you might serve others. So that you might lovingly guide people towards Christ. Remember last week we talked about issues of primary importance and issues of secondary importance. We looked at the Apostles' Creed. Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead so that I can convince other people that drinking is okay. That's what he was saying. That's not what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and freedom. It isn't about eating and drinking. Is that what he died for? No. This morning, let us leave this place walking in love, joy, and humility, ready and willing to sacrifice our preferences, no matter how right they may be, so that others will know Christ, love Christ, and follow Christ with their lives. Let us pray. Jesus, you are good, and we thank you, Father, for your gift of grace, and on this first Sunday of Advent, as we talk about hope, let us recognize that there is no hope outside of you. And yet, even though many of us know that intellectually, Father, uh, gosh, we we are searching for hope in everything, every place but you in material possessions, in money, in wealth, in our families, in relationships, in substances, we are looking for you. Somebody once said that we all have a God-shaped hole that we are seeking to fill, and there is only one thing that can fill it. And so, Father... As we read this morning in our gospel reading, would you wake us up and God give us the ability and the patience to stay awake spiritually, to not be lulled into complacency or sleep, but instead to be eyes open, focused on you and what you have done for us through Christ so that we might serve others because the time is short. Help us, Father, in our pride as well. Help us in our need to be right, in our need to win arguments, in our need to be perceived as superior to others, in our need to have our preferences or our wants or wishes or comforts met above the needs and desires and wishes of others. God, help us in humility to become more like Jesus who even though he was God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead humbled himself. We thank you, Father. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.